0: Gaming and BS, episode 265, being recorded Monday, October 21st, 2019. Welcome to Gaming and BS, the tabletop RPG podcast. I'm Sean.
1: I'm Brett. Welcome to the show, folks. Welcome back. Glad to have everybody on board. How you doing, man?
0: Doing fantastic, Brad. How are you doing? Not too bad. I had a long, long weekend of work. Oh, mm. another data center move. Yeah, third
1: one this year. Oh, this hey. calendar year. Yeah. I never, never want to do that again. Ever? No, I've moved enough data centers now.
0: <laughs> every you time can't... you
1: every time you move one, yeah. uh, that I've moved them in my career, is like, you know what we need to do? We need to take this old antiquated crap put it in a newfangled place. Ah, that sounds like a great idea. How old is that thing? Oh, this is a thing we bought 15 years ago. Oh, Lord. <laughs> so it worked, though. It was long, arduous, 26 hours. But everything worked. It worked. I got up the next day after two hours of sleep. Everybody had internet morning internet from work? Oh, yeah, everything's fine. It's cooking. Like a champ. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. I also know how to hire hire people (laughs) who know what they're doing. That's how it worked. It was good.
0: Well, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. Which, (coughs) excuse me, what it sucked was that on Sunday, um, AJ wanted to keep going with his Crips and Creatures campaign. He's like, you think we can play Sunday? I said, AJ, depends how the weekend goes, whatever. And when I came home and he got up and he said, mom, what time did Dad get home last night? She said about 6.30 in the morning. And he's like, he went to work yesterday at like 6 in the morning. She was, yes, he's been up forever now. Actually, I was at work long. I was up at like 5. But anyway, point being, I'm old. I can't, I can't do 20-plus 20, 20 hour work days anymore. So I'm kind of dragging ass today. Did you do anything fun this weekend, though? Did you get any gaming in or anything cool?
0: Yeah, man. Little I ran Tomb doom of, doom of, annihilation. of Annihilation. Anybody die yet? Kill anybody? Uh, I did not kill anybody that day. Okay. Saturday, they are down a few.
1: They are down a few. Okay. So
0: Vicky, Vicky's lost two. She had to. She actually had to create somebody, create a character. Oh. Now okay. they have a
1: rogue. So do you have a limit on that? Like, are they just gonna keep making characters until they win and get all the way through? Or
0: well, I mean, it's. The goal is to see how many tombstones are out back by the end of the game, by oh. the end of the campaign.
1: So they've come in. You check their boarding pass. They're sitting down. These players are getting all the way to the end, no matter how many characters it takes.
0: Yeah, I can't hang it up. They've come so far. All right. I'll tell you, man. The only the only person that has not lost a character yet. Jeff? Is Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sean Moe! <laughs> <laughs> technically, and technically he did. Um, I'm pretty that was a paladin. sure. That
1: was a paladin, right?
0: Yes. Okay. Yes. I'll
1: tell you what, though, man. There's a point when you're running a long campaign and it's so close to the end. And you start, you're a champion for the players almost. You're like, oh, not only do I want to get to the end of this thing, but I want them to get, I want the players to have the satisfaction of getting there. And sometimes you're like, you know what? Make another character. Come on, let's keep it rolling. Let's keep it rolling. Keep it going. <laughs> Because sometimes it's not always fun to just, oh, yeah, well, you died, fold the module up, walk away. That's tough to do.
0: Jeff technically should have lost the character.
1: But with his skillful, lawyer-like no. arguments, no. he laid down a pat- no. path of logic you could not. No. No? No? No.
0: <laughs> no. That was a, a foolish DM mistake.
1: So he threw your books in the snow.
0: I should have <laughs> thrown my books in the snow.
1: Oh, well. I'm glad he got some gaming in though. That's good.
0: Yeah, they're in the tomb, so they are. It's gonna be fun. They're dead. Yeah, it's gonna be so ridiculous. The I mean, the TPK is a real thing there, so we'll see what happens. This could be cool. Yeah, they asked if they leveled up. I can't remember what level they are. I have to double check.
1: The answer is always no until they complain and whine and control. Oh, they, they do that all the time. Yeah, and then you say, hey. "All right." All right, two of you may level and then walk away. Yes, you pick. You pick. <laughs> you pick the two that'll level. Oh my God, that'd be fun. Start, that'd, be start fun to that'd be fun to do. That'd be fun some
0: strife in this whole thing. <laughs>
1: That'd be fun to do. All right. You guys are going to level up. Yay. No, no, hold on. Only half of you will level up. You choose which half. What? Like, we each have two characters. No, no, no. Count the characters up. There's eight characters. Yeah, four characters will level. You decide yeah. who and how.
0: I don't want to condone player versus player, but I I do think a little (laughs) strife, a little edginess.
1: (laughs) I kind of want to add.
0: Yeah, okay, I got it. (laughs) There's a tactic for everybody to use.
1: I like it. All right, let's move on to announcements. Let's see here. We've got Robert at Evercon. He's running Five Torches, Dungeon Crow Classics, and Astonishing Swordsman Sorcerer of Hyperborea. Robert, I love you, man. That's awesome that is great that is um, between he and Corey Wynn and a couple other um, friends of the show and friends of ours that's it's, uh, it's great to have uh, some BSer, you know show at the show <laughs> so evercon.org check it out if you can show up there that would be great Robert's a good dude great gamer he's one of us if you can get out there hook up uh, uh, get a ticket and uh, we'll see you at the show should be good let's see here. Other news. Oh, on the Avalon Kickstarter front, the stretch goal collection, the master archivist collection, um, the preview PDFs were out and, um, then they went through, uh, we got some feedback on, Hey, there's an error. They did this lat, you know, last run of spot checks. And pretty soon we should have print on demand versions come out. If you're backing it, Phil Vecchio and master project manager and, uh, Encode Design's connoisseur, of course, sent out the latest updates. You can see all the goodness there. But I am looking really, really looking forward to getting a copy of that as well. They captured kind of the uh, the second edition um, a splat book, like the complete type of thing. That's the look of the cover, like that faux leather type of look to it. Just kind of a cool image, I think, at least so far on the PDF anyway. Cool. Happy with it. Looking forward to seeing more. Cool. You got anything, Sean, you want to talk about announcement wise? Not.
0: No, nope, nope, nope. Let's go random encounter. Random encounter. <laughs> Starting off, random encounter with an audio sent in from Goblin's Henchman on suboptimal play. Take it away, GH.
2: Hi, Sean. Hi, Brett. It's Goblin's Henchman here. I thought I'd just chime in about the episode about suboptimal gaming, and to some extent, I have a bit of an issue with that term because um, what do, what do you mean by that? Or rather, what does one mean by that? So, uh, if your objective is to win at D and D, like Chevy Chase's character in the community, then taking a certain choice may be deemed suboptimal. But if your your objective is not to win at D and D, but to in fact enjoy D and D or any RPG for that matter then the same choice would be optimal because you're making a choice driven by uh, a character. And I'd probably argue that um, in terms of metagaming, suboptimal play, as it's, we're gonna call it, is actually very rarely a meta choice because what you're usually doing is you're not, not, you're not saying, how can I attract a disadvantage, therefore my character will do something stupid. What you're often doing is saying, what does my character want to do uh, and then make a choice even though that may be in quotes suboptimal whereas true metagaming is op- often the opposite the player will figure out what the advantage is and then make a choice for their player so for example the character may never have seen a piercer before but their PC decides to walk around the stalactites even though it wouldn't naturally occur to them because they would just see it as a cave formation so there you go you've got sort of a choice being made based on what the player knows whereas The uh, the suboptimal players are often the opposite. It's what the character knows. Okay. Cheers, fellas. Have a good one. Cheerio. Bye.
1: Good stuff. Yeah. I I think we are going to see... I previewed some of these, and I think the henchman's uh, distaste for the term suboptimal, I think we will hear that echoed a few times. Matter of fact, Harrigan... Comes up next and he says, suboptimal play, black. I get where you guys and Covil are coming from with that term, but from Pathfinder and DD characters who are optimized for combat, who have meticulously chosen feats and abilities, who have dumped certain stats, etc. What you discussed in the episode really was actually optimal play to me. I mean, you were just describing people like Sean, role playing, people who care about their character motivations, about the story, about doing interesting things more than just winning tabletop minis games. Yeah. Anyway, let's maybe come up with a better term, such as non-tactical play or not playing like an (laughs) asshat. I like that one. (laughs) Second item. Brett mentioned PCs who have dad's two-handed sword or mom's plus one ring of protection. As a side joke, if uh, she's your mom, the protection didn't work. Just saying.
0: Oh, 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 hey-oh. Come on, Gus. Get Uh, in there. uh, uh, hey hey!
1: All right. Anyway. I have an idea on this front because I've currently got a 5e character faced with this. She uses her mom's sword and it's incredibly important to her. She won't stop using it for nothing. That I can tell some better weapons are coming her way. So what about this idea? When a character finds a plus one weapon, allow them to impart that bonus to their signature weapon if they like. It can simply represent the PC coming to know the weapon better, gaining skill and faith in it, comprehending its magical nature, etc. I'm going to pitch this idea to my GM, but he'll probably tell me to blow smoke and stop playing suboptimally. <laughs> Cheers, lads. Harrigan. Harrigan, we did an episode a while back on different magic items and stuff. And I cannot recall who said it, but Earth Dawn has a mechanic in it where, I hate the term unlocked, but it's become part of our parlance here. But where a magical weapon unlocks as a, as you level, you kind of gain more with it. So I think that's what you're going for is a type of thing where you're like, hey, this is the the weapon, the, the primary focus type of thing, going from plus one perhaps to plus two or gaining other powers, unlocking that extra potential in the weapon and through yourself as your character. So it's not unheard of, apparently Earth Dawn does it, and I think a few other people mentioned some other pieces, but it's out there and man, I wish you luck with that too. I think that would be, I think that'd be really cool, uh, a cool thing to do with that weapon. And I agree, the term suboptimal may be suboptimal. There might be a better – all right, I'm going to back off and let Sean oh, read the next
0: one. <laughs> Matt V comments on suboptimal play. I think for once you guys were a way off the mark here. Unless, whoa, I mis- whoa. whoa. <laughs> what? What's that? Oh. Unless right. I misunderstood some points. Well, we'll see, Matt. We'll see. First – While mostly a semantics issue, I think much of what you described was not suboptimal play. I actually think, if anything, it'd be classified as optimal play. So I see where they're going with this. Yes, yes, yes. You're not playing correctly, but you... uh, Like, we phrased it as you're not playing correctly, but when... You play with the role you are yeah, optimally playing.
1: It's how you're looking at it, right? Yeah. Do you care about that more than you care about being able to do maximum damage with long spear? Right. You know what? What is optimal to you? I think yes. is is a good way to put this. And I like so the you, fact that this is coming out.
0: If you had a disadvantage and you played to that disadvantage, you would be playing the way you optimally. should be.
1: Yes. By some people's standards. Correct.
0: Yes. 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 All right. Sacrificing your character when you may not have to, charging characters you shouldn't, running at the monster with lit dynamite, etc., is good role playing, i.e., good play. We are playing a role playing game, not a board game or tactical minis game, with a goal to make a compelling com- collaborative story, arguably. Suboptimal tactics, sure. But choosing RP over tactics, especially when it may result in a character death and/or may not be necessary, is anything but suboptimal play, in my opinion. Of course. Yep. By yes.
1: No, I like the fact that I like the fact that Matt, much like Harrigan and Henchman, are saying, you know, this is their opinion. This is how they are seeing it. Because I can guarantee you somebody out there saying, no, 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 no. Optimal right. play is this other thing. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting way to what the word con- connotates
0: to each individual person. Carry on, sir. Second, I don't think playing tactically is metagamey. Theoretically, your character has some understanding of how the world he lives in works. I don't know about current editions, but back in 3E, if you were at a first level character... With a non-NPC class, you are more experienced than about 80% of the world's population. Many games infer that you are already starting as a mover and shaker of the world, such as Fate, Savage Worlds, and Cypher System. So understanding that flanking provides a huge advantage or having the high ground is desirable should should just make common sense. Could, yeah, I could see that. Sure. Hmm. Not to mention, much of it is just basic tactics. Even when I was a kid, I had three friends who loved to fight, and if they initiated the fight, they made sure to control the flanks. If 12- and 13-year-old kids know they are better off in a flank, I see no right reason why trained warriors would be metagaming if they did so. And if you're playing on a grid, I realize this slightly contradicts point one, you are somewhat turning it into a tactics game. Maybe there's an argument for games where you aren't inherently experienced, such as DCC, but there you need them even more.
1: Hmm. I don't know. It's goofy, because if you're playing a gong farmer, he or she knows fuck all about tactics. Right. Yeah. And they learn tactics by level five if they scrape, claw, and murder their way to that level, potentially. There's just there's other ways. Mighty deeds, man. You get that at first. Yeah, I know. Well, it oh. doesn't doesn't mean you're like really good at it. No. No, it's just, it's interesting. I like this. It's just another it's another way to look at it. Another way to define it. It's it's cool. Keep going.
0: However, I tend to not fret much over meta gaming in general. So maybe this is my personal bias speaking. Lastly, I think there is a time and method to explain what a character can do, especially with a new system or new players. Some things in our games are hard to grasp. We just transitioned our Shadowrun game from Anarchy, Super Rules Lite, to 6E, pretty normal Shadowrun game rules-wise, which is a pretty big system shock for the players, even the more experienced players. One player has read the rules twice and is helping the other players see more of their options. I don't think you were inferring this wasn't possible, and I've seen the dickhead way of doing it, too. Obviously, there's a fine line here. Anyway, guys... Love the show as usual, even if you are wrong for a change. And if I misinterpreted anything, I apologize. No, nah, man, Matt, I don't think you
1: misinterpreted anything. I think the, the key piece here is you know the, the term suboptimal. What does that mean to you? What does optimal play? So this is an interesting dialogue. You know, like, I, like we said before, if we were having this conversation at a restaurant or a gaming convention, having a beer, having a coffee or lunch, this would come up. We'd talk about this and somebody would say, hang on a second, what do you mean by... So I like this. I like this approach. This is good stuff. All right. Thank you much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see.
1: Thanks. What do we got next? Ted. Matt. Over on the forums. Ted says, I know I engage in this suboptimal play when either the other players or the GM DM, DM have gotten the players into bad behavior. For example, DM has decided to be overzealous in trapping things, and now the party is starting to search for traps at every turn. Or well, the party was ambushed by something, and now they're deciding that they are going to proceed with overt caution. I'm good with all this until it slows down actual play at the table. I came here to play a hero, not a nervous mouse who's afraid of his own shadow. It's at this point I'm going to check to see if it, this behavior is actually justified by my character. If it's not, I'm going to slam through the door without checking for traps, run it to, up to the sarcophagus, and kick open the lid and toss in flaming oil, yelling at the top of my lungs. This is suboptimal play on my part. It's done the kick the DMGM into realizing the table is stalled out and to have and to have a hand in helping move the play forward. I guess this means I occasionally get called out as a Leroy Jenkins, but there's worse things. You know, Ted, I tell you, man, other people have called this Rainmaker, so Mr. Director Marcus said that. But a player like that who's gonna who doesn't turtle, like, oh no, we need to stop. We have to protect. We have to somebody's like, you know what? We're in the Tomb of of, uh, Annihilation. I put my hand in the hole. Let's see what happens. Oh, God. I open the thing. Let's do this. Let's go. We're here to kick some ass. Chew bubblegum. Guess what? We're a lot of fucking bubblegum. I like it. I like it. You
0: should hear these guys when they're, now they're entering the tomb. Now everything is, okay, well, I suggest we go this way. (laughs) And then I go, okay, so are you going that way or are you just suggesting this well, should we go that way? We go that way. I go. Who's we? Is that? Are you speaking for the party, Jeff, or what? What you do just say, Jeff, is party caller. I told. I mentioned caller because Vicky doesn't has not been exposed to caller and some of the other caller mapper have. Yeah. blah blah blah. Yeah,
1: yeah, Jeff's a party caller, man.
0: But it is going to be a little bit of this from Ted, like um. No, I get it. I totally get it. And I tell you, man,
1: a, a game like. I told like, Vicky to go in there. I've gained with men and women who are like, you know what? This has gone on long enough. I light them on fire. <laughs> you know, this has gone on long enough. Fireball. You know, I, I've played with men and women who are both very anxious um, to get the goddamn ball rolling. I've seen people turtle at con games, too. And I'm like, ride it like you stole it, man. Tomb I mean, it's. horrors, man. It's just go. Be. Just fucking go.
0: It's going to be a crawl. I don't know. We'll see. Are we done? Are we got any more? Yeah, we have more, man. We oh, I, more. Didn't, I didn't even see you there. Your turn. Lewis writes in, why so serious? So BSers, I've been trying to bite my lip in response to the why so serious episode, because even though it is a fascinating topic, it seems a bit of a distraction of the fun enjoyment of gaming. Nonetheless, I've not heard anyone else expose expose anything close to my thoughts on the episode. So I figured I would throw them out there and see what you think. At the start of the episode, we're referring to Lovecraft, Lovecraft as racist, and I think this should give us pause for examination. Isn't it kind of interesting? I mean, here's a guy that lived a full, rich life, like all of us.
1: I would argue Lovecraft did not live a rich life. Knowing what I know about his biography and how pathetic he kind of was in his daily pursuits, I wouldn't say that was
0: rich. A guy that did many wonderful things. He did, Perhaps. And like most of us, many distasteful or regrettable things. Some of
1: his writing, terms, and thoughts, yes.
0: And despite all the wonder he, like all of us, brought into the world, we want to distill his life down to a single sin label.
1: Some people do do that. Yes. Yep.
0: Yes, that is correct.
1: That is correct. That is that does happen.
0: And I will say, not we want. Some people want.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think that's. I think that's what Lewis is
0: getting at there. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's a bit, uh, demanding of us, isn't it? I get that racism, racism is horrible, but I also get that people aren't these perfectly good or solely evil creatures. Mm -hmm. And I doubt he just decided one day to arbitrarily hate a group of people. Yeah. I, I can't speak to Mr. Lovecraft's mind. No, but I mean, I get it. I get, I get the perspective. Carry on. Like like all of us, he was a product of his times, experiences, surroundings, and emotional slash rational abilities. Through or though his work may not be respectful of the equality all humans deserve, I have never read any of it that seems to be intentionally persuading the reader toward racist theories and propaganda.
1: Hmm. When he refers to certain races. So it was common. Um, Robert E. Howard did a similar thing when I mean, he referred to what African American people, the descriptions, not very flattering, not very nice, very stereotypical, racist type of terms. Lovecraft tended to use terms that I easily glossed over, being white middle class guy, I'm like, oh blah, 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 blah. And I talked to other people and I look back, and I'm like, huh. Yeah, calling people you know a polyglot of mongoloid you know and, and all the evil comes from this group of people that all happen to look a certain way eh, yeah i would i would argue that he did now he wasn't overtly saying all people from china are terrible all people of african descent are this way right but some of the descriptions not not the nicest
0: yeah that Carry is it that i th- that in my opinion i think that's a bit of a choice. Yeah. Right? You're like you're writing if you're writing something and you're describing something, you're putting some some thought of something into it, whether that is a biased thought or not. Yep. Kind of, you know, maybe and, and
1: sometimes you can you can read a thing and not I'm gonna say get it and put that in quotes. Because you read a thing, and go, huh, I didn't read it that way. And somebody else reads the thing and goes, No, that's totally overtly X. Right. I mean I studied I was an English major in college, I studied tons of literature and you'd read something and think, Oh, this is obviously a poem about X. I'm like, if I can read that at all. Where the hell did you get that from? Right. I think the important thing from this, and you know, Lewis is saying, you know, it's question it, you know, look at it, think about it. Anyway, keep going.
0: I think a big part of our current divisive American culture is that we want to crucify everybody for anything they do wrong especially if it is currently popular to hate a person for that flaw slash choice slash belief slash lifestyle. And when we shun these peoples and the gifts they have, what does it do? Does it convert them to our beliefs? Does it make them change their ways? Does it encourage others not to do what they did? Or does it just spread hate and division? Aren't we more likely to have an impact on someone we are interacting with? me rephrase that aren't we encouraging others not to do what they did or does it just spread the hate and division aren't we more likely to have an impact on someone we are interacting with Mm -hmm. so long as an artist's work isn't about intentionally spreading an evil how does me supporting it or not supporting it have any bearing on their point of view or agenda
1: this is no it's it's a big question, and I, yeah. this is one that I think when Jeff Code wrote in, and we use that kind of as the kickstart for the topic. I mean, it's a thinking about it and how you choose to how you choose to answer that question or those questions that Lewis is putting out there. That's it's your choice. That's your answer. Yeah, it's your answer. I'm not going to tell you what you.
0: I'm not you, man. Nope, can't. And so continues. Um, is the idea that by not supporting the cool stuff they do, I will cause their gifts to be wasted, them to be penniless, and eventually they will be starved out and die? Who's evil now? I don't know, but to me, we have to embrace one another at any point we can, flaws and all, whether we see eye to eye ideologically or not, if we want a better world, and if we want to really affect one another's perception of truth.
1: I think I think that there's limits and things that everybody has of what they're willing to. They're just everybody's limits and different morality and how they want to look at things and so on. I'll try to touch on it in the episode, but these are good questions. And I think they're, they're a thing when Lewis is bringing this up, I'm reading this as saying, hey, think about this stuff. Right. You know? Are you a
0: critical thinker?
1: Yeah. Be a critical thinker. Don't just go, well, I, I've decided that this, so therefore I've decided X, therefore Y. Right. Hmm. Think critically about what it is you're doing, impact and all that stuff. If if at the end you're like, Hey, look, I'm justified because I have thought critically I've done this thing. Good for you. I, I don't know. I I say good for you flippantly, but I'd rather have you doing something from a point of intelligence than a knee jerk reaction, I guess.
0: Or just something kind of ridiculous. You know, I woke up this morning and read something on the internet. Therefore, it's true.
1: Oh yeah! How many times have we seen that flat earthers? Hello, <laughs> or, whatever. or whatever. Insert
0: we're insert somewhat shallow thinking here. Yes, there. yes, yes, yes. On a lighter note, the coolest D and D character sheet I have ever seen is for free on Drive Through from Necrotic Gnome Studios. It is called the Old School Essentials Underground Character Sheet. Check it out. It is fantastically fun. Finally, do you guys do any special gaming around Halloween? I know myself included. Many gamers do a special Halloween time game session. If so, what are some of your better Halloween game runs?
1: I used to, back in the day when I was running Vampire, I used to have a Halloween game special. What we would do would be a huge culmination and wrap-up of a piece of the story. And that was, again, back in the day when I was doing that, we would play a regular Saturday games, and this would be an all-day event. Food, cooking, drinks, all basically a big gaming party. It was a huge, damn near mini LARP at the time. We showed up a costume. We had a good time, dressed as character. It was a great time. Now, no, not so much. <laughs> I think in part because a lot of us have kids, in my gaming group anyway. And usually around Halloween, we're off doing stuff with the kids or the family and whatnot. This Halloween, I'll be at
0: con with my wife and kids. So, Sean, yeah, have you... I- I do not have a special uh, Halloween game. I, it always sneaks up on me. It just passes right by me. Um, have I thought about wanting to do that? Of course. Uh, I just have not. So it's, it is probably for me due to lack of consciously planning it.
1: And it's kind of one of those things. Are you doing a one shot or, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If you're gonna do a one shot in your middle of campaign, sometimes your your crew will be like, Whoa, whoa, we're gaming. We're in the middle of this event. We're in the middle of Doom Annihilation, you son of a gun. Why would you I wanna stop and play Call of Cthulhu? It's game night for Doom Annihilation. Let's keep the fucking ball rolling.
0: Right. Cool. Yeah. So thanks for writing in, Lewis. Yeah, man. Let's get into the main topic, Brett. Let's jump. All right. You ready? Why am my ever. <laughs> Pull
1: this out of the forums. Or, uh, one of our listeners, Tom, said, hey, I'm tired of tracking coins and in individual purchases. I've experimented with several other methods of abstract wealth, or the, excuse me, that abstract wealth. It's more a matter of what standard of living the PCs can afford. Anything appropriate to that category, they can just have. More expensive items. They may may have to roll against their standard of living and possibly take on debt to acquire. Large influxes, treasure, can increase their standard of living by a small amount for a long time or much higher for a brief period. Anyway, you get the idea. So what Tom's looking for is how the hell tracking coins and purchases and it's the money management. This is your your Quicken Books episode. (laughs) Money, money,
0: money, money.
1: So, so Sean, when I read this from Tom, my first thought was, this would be a cool topic. The second thought was, call Cthulhu, man. It has a, you know, it's got the standard of living, basically, right into it. You've got the, you've got the, um, what the fuck is it called now? It's not. Is it wealth? Wealth, something like that. I'm going to look at it. I got to look this up. I I had the term not until I lost it. But there's a skill that you have for your standard of living. And basically, hey, do you have a bankroll of whatever, oh, then you can have that. If you don't, you you can roll against it in order to gain access to things. Like, hey, if you're financially set and trying to schmooze your way into a fancy party, you know how to act and behave in this sort of financial bureaucratic format. So I've never tracked cash in like a Call of Cthulhu or even a Delta Green game. A lot of it comes down to that skill. I'm going to look that up right now. Uh, Sean, when you, when you think about this, do you, um, I guess, do you like to do the, the, the bean counting or how do you go about it? Or do you use abstraction, prefer an abstract type of system?
0: (laughs) I, um, uh, That is a good question. I have not gotten into the minutia of All this, like even the Tomb of Annihilation, there's been very little money involved because there isn't anything in the middle of a jungle, so they could have as much money as they want. They don't have anything to do with it.
1: Remember the days when we would game? We'd be like, Oh my god, I have all this power, I have all this platinum, I have all this stuff in the middle of a jungle. Like, why do you have all this?
0: Yeah, um,
1: credit rating, credit rating, credit rating, credit, Credit, oh, credit rating, yeah, credit rating.
0: Now, I did order Matt. Colville's castles and strongholds
1: strongholds and followers. Yep.
0: That one. Yeah. Strongholds and followers. Uh-huh. So we'll see what that is all about. I haven't looked at it. Of course I have the PDF of course, mm-hmm. when I bought the print copy, Yep. but uh, and, and that does interest me to some degree where, you know, the party can gain a bunch of money and spend it the way they want or whatever. Um, I mean, yeah, it has, it's been a while since the days of, having tons of gold. Pathfinder probably was when the last time I played that.
1: Well I'll tell you it sounds like to me, <coughs> excuse me, your tomb of annihilation, the way you're dealing with it right now is basically based on the locale, are the players bothering to amass the gold or are they looking more for magic items type of thing? Do they are they collecting every gold coin? Are they counting all their pennies? Or are they aware of the fact that they're in the jungle and it doesn't freaking matter?
0: They literally found some treasure this past Saturday for the first time in months, like game months, not game months. What did they do with said treasure? Did they immediately pocket it? Well, they were like, yeah, so they wrote it all down. I don't know where they would put it all. I don't (laughs) think it's too much, but it's enough to be a major pain in the ass to carry without a beast of burden and the fact that you're in the desert. Yeah. And you're going into a tomb. Mm Mm-hmm. So my... I don't know if I don't really get into the nuances of that as much, like if it's as long as they're not, oh, tapestries and the tapestries are worth how much? Okay, we pull all the tapestries down. and those we ten by the...
1: ten doors are made of gold. Yeah. I take the doors.
0: Yes. okay, great. That's not gonna happen. Well, then I'll go and get a wagon and a cart uh-huh and a and a horse and we'll load it up. G- great. <clears throat> Excuse me. I will tell you yeah. one of,
1: one of the things I do in D and D because they don't have a credit rating thing, and I'm actually the more we're talking about this, I'm wondering if it's a a thing that I should add in where the credit rating <clears throat> in D and D five e if credit rating was equal to hmm, if it gave you a bonus for every like thousand gold pieces worth of coins you had or something, so you kept track of stuff, but it gave you anyway. Blah, blah, blah. Different different thought process, the noodle on that. Anyway, what I often do when it comes to treasure in the game, I'm like, you find approximately or you find 50 gold pieces worth of assorted coins or worth of gold and silver. So the players will keep track of the largest and the largest, most common denomination that they have because when they're finding treasure, I don't want to go through and say it's 15 gold pieces, 16 copper, Seventy-two silver, because I'm like, nobody's counting that. Are you sitting down to count at all? No, then, then you've got about a hundred gold pieces worth of coins. So right down to hundred, gold, one hundred GP. And then they divide it up amongst themselves. Um, but a lot of times, I will do things like, okay, if you're in town, like in the city of Avalon or whatever, what's it cost to live? Um, how much money do you have? Say, well, based on that. You should be able to survive in your current standard of living for X number of weeks, days, months, or year, um, assuming you don't lose any of that money. In that type of setting, because it's, you know, it's a gritty trying to be uh, realistic is not the right word because it's a game for Christ's sake. But trying to have that kind of gritty realism, counting coins makes a little bit of sense because they don't have tons and tons of treasure. But I could definitely see where in a dare I say, regular game, fantasy game where you have lots of treasure, having some sort of a mechanism to do a credit rating type of check or something where you say, look, you've got plenty of money. This isn't a problem. Well, what should I do to do it? Well, I want to buy the the bar round of drinks. How many gold is that? And I have just flat hand waved certain things in the past. Look, you guys have enough money. It doesn't matter. You know, what are you doing tonight? We're at the tavern. All right, what are you, crowding? Yeah, we're going to play poker, hang out, buy drinks, buy dinner. We just want to make friends with the locals. If somebody decides that they're going to do that as a group, I'd be like, okay, it happens. You get money, you spend money, you've got a windfall, you lose some. Somebody buys another round and on top of your round. So at the end of the day, it's pretty much a wash. Nobody really gains or loses any money out of it. And from a story perspective, the people I played with have never been upset about that. But. Generally in like a D game, for whatever reason, I think just because of my nature, how I grew up with it, we track everybody tries to track the money. But again, when I play Call of Cthulhu, oh, credit rating, that's what that's for? Oh, thank God, I don't have to track it. <laughs> kind of like, you know, arrows and and things like that in DD. Some people want to count every quarrel in the in the case, and other people are like, look, you've you've got arrows, it's fine, type of thing. Do you? I guess Sean, do you see a um, hmm. In a regular d in it in a d d or Pathfinder game, would you want to have kind of a credit rating type of system or something that's a little more abstract, or do you want to count the gold as a player? I, as a player,
0: no. I think as a player, we well we divvy it up. Like okay. so, if we come across two hundred gold pieces, we have five people. At the end of the session is when we usually divvy things up. Okay. So, so you- there's one person that takes a master list of stuff. Big party loot pile. Big party loot. And then at the end, it's like, okay, how much gold does everybody get? Okay. Everybody gets 50 gold. Scratch, scratch, scratch. Okay. Everybody gets 10 silver. Uh, there's two gems. Okay. I take the gem. Do you,
1: when you guys split up treasure like that, or do people argue over it? No, I need the gems. I need, I'm need. i trying to buy something. I need more money than you. Does that, you ever run into that?
0: Haven't run into it with the gems or we've, depending on where we are, we'll just say we sell it and then divvy up the gold. Got it. Or we can just ask the game master, like, can we just break this in half or fifths and just take the Split gold? it. Right. I don't, gems are weird. Gems are nice if you're, you know, okay, well, I don't want to carry 500 gold. So I have this one gem.
1: Great. I've honestly found that when I play with my kids, when AJ's running, Ilana likes to have, um, she likes to have a certain amount of pocket. She calls it pocket money. I want to have some stuff in case my character wants to buy anything. And then we have a party pile. So, and what that means is that she always wants to have her character, her characters, because she's got two of them, to have a certain amount of coin on them in case they want to buy something that she thinks is just silly or funny. Like if she's walking down, she finds a pipe per character wants to buy or a fancy bottle or something. She just wants to be able to buy it. What then what she wants though is a larger pile of party loot. So that way, when we as a group say, Hey, there's a guy and he can take my short sword and enchant it for me. How much money do we have? Well, we've got 1500 gold to cost 2000. She goes, okay, I've got 50 over here. How much do you have? Okay. Then we dig into our personal stash and hand it out. But otherwise a lot of, times even with some of the other groups i've played DD with over the years kind of a party treasure is fine because people are totally cool with it's all for one and one for all when it comes to money and they've said hey how much money do you have well how much do we have as a total we got a thousand gold pieces good because we need to buy this 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 and this we just split the split the difference i have found over the years though that if you have mildly antagonistic group, not necessarily PvP, but if you have a group that is, I want to amass a specific amount of money to do a certain thing, like buy a tavern or buy buy a scroll or whatever it is, then the wizard is, you know, gathering all of their gold pieces to themselves and don't want to share it with anybody because they need that in order to make their manual golems work or whatever the hell they happen to have. So I think certain games, depending what you're trying to do, if it's for personal gain, people like to watch the coin pile go up you know scrooge mcduck style they want to watch that thing grow so they can buy the thing that they really really want that make sense
0: yeah it does and with (laughs) downtime and 5e um and some of the things that you can do Mm -hmm. you know i'm i'm fine with that i i there is a a style of game where you decide whether you want to go that route or not my style would be to, okay, here's the treasure, whatever they get, you deal with it the way you want. Yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and go, and like you said, Brad, if as long as they're not prying gold doors off of hinges. You could give a shit. I could give a shit. You wanna put in, you know, a thousand gold pieces and they weigh a ton and they're all in one sack, hey, all right, fine. You get it back somehow one way or another. You stash it in a hole in the ground. And when you're done with the adventure, you go back to your stash regardless. Now, there are some approaches to you give characters magic items, you give characters Mm -hmm. gold, and the point is to take that away from them over time.
1: Yes. So (laughs) that actually brings me to a good example I had back in my White Wolf days. Um, You had money and it was uh let's see if i can find my character sheet on that but what you did was your character had certain dots you could have is what we always call them dots because of these little circles you circle them in how many points how many dots do you have in
0: it's like a standardized test
1: yeah very much like a standardized test which was very (laughs) punk and gothic and um i'll fight any man who says otherwise (laughs) it was basically like a standardized test for yeah that's terrible Right. Anyway. Yeah. What would, what people would do is they would, we'd spend money for, for all this cash and they want to be able to have it because then you roll dice utilizing that where it would say, Hey, at this level, much like in call of Cthulhu, if you have five points, you have billions and billions of dollars, very little. You can't buy three, three points. You could buy up to X. It would give you kind of a range which was helpful because when you'd go into the store and want to buy that big fifty cal desert eagle, because that's what you had to have back in the nineties, every time you were a vampire, you wanted to make sure that you could afford it. Here's how you did that: by looking at the the points, the dots on your character sheet. Do you have enough? Right?
0: It's all about the dots.
1: All about the dots. Now, one well, of the other fun pieces for me in that game was destroying that shit. <laughs> So players would put points in the things. I think I've told this story before. We had a guy named Gary who was playing with us for a while. Gary. And he, and he built this this vampire monster. It was just fame and fortune and cash and cash and more cash and lots and lots of money. So I just and I just started to take away all this. The bad guys come in and they start destroying all this stuff. He's like, I just lost four points in this. Oh my God. Ah. And Alpha looks up at him sagely and says, You spent points on things Brett can take away? <laughs> Rookie mistake. (laughs) It was back to his character sheet. (laughs) Um, because it became very, in a in that system, I couldn't take away your coin, right? Like in D anD D or an Avalon game, you couldn't get broken into, you couldn't be pickpocketed or whatever it was. When the bad guy would hack your bank account, would destroy your casino that you owned, your resource, your resources would just plummet. Like ah, shit. So I use resources kind of almost like a thermometer. You could be really high and do really well because you had a something or other. Hey, that gives you resources of four. Holy crap, I can buy whatever I want. Yep, then bam, something would happen. It would drop you down to a two or a one or back and forth. So even with something like that, a resource pool, having it fluctuate gave the characters a feeling that they don't always have this money. If they fuck something up or somebody wants to, they can kick you right in the pocketbook and they can really take take it to you. Because I would have people do things where in vampire, of course, the fun part would be you'd foreclose when their uh, resource pool would drop enough, you start foreclosing on their properties. And then the city bought the property and no player characters ever paid attention to this. And the city decided to fucking bulldoze it and put a parking lot on top of your house while you're sleeping in, in the basement in daytime because that's when construction workers work and you're a goddamn vampire. Oh yeah, that was great. <laughs> that was good stuff. Oh yeah. Wake up to the sound of bulldozers and sunlight. Oh, this is this That is, is,
0: that is great money there.
1: <laughs> that was good stuff. That was good
0: stuff. <laughs> but a resource pool
1: like that, I think in a D and D type of setting, Tom's talking about here is having a standard of living pool or some kind of a, a way to measure it where it can ebb and flow and have that impact. And Claw Cthulhu, if you have a credit rating of 85, you roll under your credit rating to buy things, to again schmooze your way in. It's got a lot of different tweaks and things that you can get for it. And I think if you want to make in a DD world, this is where I was kind of building something on the fly, is if you look at it and say, huh, I think I can do create a pool or something where they have number of points or a a set volume that allows them to do something, but it's got to have ebb and flow, right, in some way. And that's why I think I have not had a chance to read through all of Strongholds and Followers. I need to crack that book back open. I started reading it, then got distracted. But I'd like to see how Matt Colville's stuff, how they track the money. Is it penny by penny, five copper by five copper? That is actually, I swear to God, that's one of the things that, that stopped my friends and I in the old school days from wanting to deal with fortresses and followers and stuff, because our D- DMS are always, if it said 500 gold, you didn't have 500 gold. You couldn't buy it. Right. Didn't matter how much land or property you had. they say, well, you get 15 copper from these peasants and 16 silver from these peasants. Oh, motherfucker. And you needed <laughs> a spreadsheet to figure all this crap out. And there were no spreadsheets back in that day, at least not electronically. So it was just a son of a gun to do that. So I'm wondering I haven't read it yet, so I've got to I've got to punch through it and see if he's got some good ideas in it. But
0: well, and there's two things at play too. One is influence. So the more money you have, and more wealth you have, the more influence you can have.
1: Yeah, that's like the credit rating thing from Call. Of yeah, that's, it's, that's, it, it, that's influence. The, is a good way to look at it. Thank yeah, you, I appreciate yeah, that.
0: Yeah, that's the that's what I think is the difference between the two is you've got one one scenario where your player character may need influence. Therefore, you're the face person and you're going to, you know, you, you've you got sway because you've got some money and resources, but you don't have to pay out the physical gold. And then yeah. you have the approach where it's like, all right, you're at the bar. That's a gold piece or a couple of coppers. Well, I don't have any money. Oh, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, uh, that's, that's a problem.
0: Yeah, that's a big, in, I mean, you phys- you actually don't have any of that money or you're just not willing to pay. No, I don't have any of the money, like zero. You, you're broke. Okay, great. Wow. You know,
1: that concept of influence, I like that because if you take that to a D&D game, five year, what have you, you could say, well, how much money do you have? How much gold do you have in general? You know, well, I got 2,000 gold pieces. Okay, I'll give you a plus two on this charisma check where you're trying to schmooze the right person. I'm trying to use my money as influence, right? I'm walking around mm-hmm. well dressed and i how to present myself. I've got the cash. I want to make it influence. I want to use my money to influence a thing. Sometimes. We've done it. Well, are you bribing them? And this isn't bribing, right? Maybe it could can conceivably be part of the bribe system if you have such a thing where you say, well, I slip them five gold or I give them a platinum or some silver. It, but this is a little, it's almost like the promise of a bribe or like that, do you have any idea who I am?
0: It's a Lannister thing.
1: Yeah, it's like- I have got- the
0: reputation of having the money.
1: I have money and I have yeah. lots of it. And if uh, if you do me this favor- I will owe you a favor and favors for me usually come in little leather bags full of coins, chink, 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 you know, that type of thing. So I think having an influence, having your cash have an influence. And then, you know, if you fail a role, it might then cost you money. So I look at, so let me think about this. So in a and D game, you try to do something to influence someone and you make a role against whatever, a charisma check, perhaps it's just a straight charisma check. You're trying to use your money to influence it. And you want to, and you've got enough who will give you a plus three. You fail, you could still make it work, but you have to lose a certain amount of gold coins. You've got to actually then turn this into a bribe. You have to spend that money and basically drop your influence pool in some way. I don't know. I'm thinking off the top of my head, Jared Rasher or Krim fan or somebody smarter than me in mechanics could probably crank through that, but Point is I like the idea when you said influence, that's important. I think that's that's kind of the cool piece there, right? Is I mean Tom's talking about like standard of living and so forth. And part of that is just raw influence. I want to be able to rent that apartment in the better enough town. I want to be able to get better food. I want to be able to have a have a bargain. One thing that 5e has to go back to there, and the DMG, I think on page 256, maybe. Anyway, it's an optional rules. Honor. There's an honor. Um, piece in there that you can use kind of as a charisma piece. And if you were to take that, you might even be able to turn that into an in, um, an influence, like a wealth or social standing where honor equals social standing, because that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Where your social standing goes up or down. Like, Hey, she's known to have, you know, mommy Warbucks. She's got tons of cash and daddy poor pants has nothing. You know, you can work yourself up and down. Hmm. Kind of solving the problem as I go here. But I like that the term influence, Sean, that really strikes a chord with me. I like that. Yeah. What else do you, from a standard of living perspective, do you in your D&D games, do people care about or do you as a game master, even you as a player, care about the standard of living? Like, hey, I want to make sure I buy houses and have servants and type of thing. Or does that never cross your mind in those types of games?
0: No, they do. Um whoops. And then we I'll have a character that usually plays an affluent player character. Like Jimmy had played an affluent um elf in um the heist. What the heck? Dragon Heist okay. game. And so he would flaunt around and he was always above everybody else and that no money wasn't an issue. And, mm-hmm. and, and naturally it really wasn't brought up where money was an issue, um, in the game. And so everybody pretended everything was fine. He had connections and, you know, um, his family was well known and had prestige and all this other stuff. So, um, and we have, we have a player, character in the Call of Cthulhu game that is fairly similar as well. Crystal's character comes from an affluent family. And so uh Jimmy plays almost like her butler.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So he's significantly older and he caters to her um kind of as a watchdog too, you know. Oh, she's going off to something. He will accommodate her or accompany her and you know bring her bags and yes, very well, ma'am, you know, and kind of do his thing. And he's like the family friend. So we've had those instances where these things have come into place, but it's more of a role-playing and and situational. Less
1: less mechanical.
0: Yeah, less mechanical. It hasn't come into play yet where she's done. um, What is it, the mechanic for Call of Cthulhu?
1: Oh, credit rating.
0: Yeah, we haven't pushed that yet. Um, It could come up any minute now, but it just hasn't. Um, but now they're in New York, they're going to be roaming around and I'm sure that that is just a matter of time. Yep. Could play it right into it. Yep.
1: I think one of the things I like about, um, a point spending system, like a gumshoe is if you have a pool of things and you're spending off of it, you're either spending points to get bonuses or points for automatic, whatever. If you have a, a pool of a thing, And look, you have a standard of living or a wealth or resources. And at that number, I could look at you. I used to do this in Vampire and tell people, look, if you spend a point of your resources, if you willingly lower it from a four to a three, I'll let you buy this thing you really, really got to have. I'm like, yeah, okay. Which Which was a way to mechanically say, you burn your offshore accounts. You go through all these bearer bonds. You go through you know, the sock drawer and pull the money out or whatever. That's kind of how you did it. You you cashed in those chips. So you had that. And I think that's kind of the, it's an abstract way that still captures that D&D. Well, I only have 50 gold. I pay 25 gold, right? Oh, I only have 25 left. But taking it up a notch and maybe even such a thing in d d is you just, you run it by the hundreds or the fifties or the tens. And you say, you know, nothing costs. It's goofy because D&D has that built-in copper, silver, electrum, platinum, or electrum, gold, platinum. It has a built-in piece like that. But you could do, you could simplify it. Like, look, it's either it's silver or gold and that's it. There are no copper or electrum pieces. And you could be like, look, it's, you could just simplify the money system or um, which might be a little more drastic of a tool there. But anyway, I, I think, Having a pool of some kind that you watch ebb and flow would give in a DD world for time, giving him this idea of, hey, we just killed the dragon. We have a big influx. The pool whoosh, goes right up to a thousand. And then because the standard of living you have, it takes, you know, X number of points off that pool every couple of days, which is basically no different than counting all the different coins, but just trying to round it up to big enough numbers or rounding it down to small enough numbers where it's easily manipulated. It's kind of anathema almost to how D&D traditionally handles money, but I think there's there's something that can be done there with that resource concept from, uh, from White Wolf, like I said, and <clears throat> like a point spend, point buy from a gumshoe with the uh, idea to influence like you're talking about which comes, which in my mind kind of comes from that Call of Cthulhu approach. I like some kind of a <laughs> – somebody do something with that, merge that together. And by God, I'm somebody out there probably is screaming at their phone right now uh, or whatever they're listening to us on and saying, oh, my God, if you only played X, Y, and Z game, it has this solved. I just don't – I just can't think of it off the top of my head. But, I get, Sean, is there – so when I, when I think about this, it seems to me that it would be really handy – but I don't know would it only be handy for certain types of campaigns or storylines in a and type of setting. If you're playing gritty down and out adventurers trying to do something and every, every copper piece matters, maybe it doesn't matter. I don't know.
0: Well, again, it goes back to the type of game you want to run and want to play and want to convey. Yeah. So if you want it gritty, I mean, if you want to play Sviander and, you know, nobody, you don't have any money and you're adventuring and you don't know where your next meal is. And in order to get that, you have to do X, Y, and Z. Well, that could be the focus of the entire game. I mean, Uh, If you're running a survival game
1: and you're in the wilderness, you have no food, no clothing, money doesn't matter. And suddenly rations matter. How many days worth of supply? How much clean water do you have? And so forth. And so I think if you're doing it if money, you want to have it matter, it's almost like what level does it need to matter? Depends on what level of abstraction you need to to build into it right. in a way. Where in Call of Cthulhu, it's not about getting money. Call of Cthulhu is about no. investigation. <clears throat> Same with, um, you know, Gumshoe and so forth. It's about investigation, digging into things. So counting how many dollar bills you have is a waste of that game's time. Where D&D is treasure, riches, exploration, Gaining things back in the old days. Remember when gold pieces equaled experience points, Sean? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You you know, it was worth the thief's time to steal a whole bunch of gold instead of fighting the monsters because he had a better, that, that was easy experience points compared to, I almost bled to death experience points type of thing. Right. So I think you're, um, I think you're dead right, Sean. It depends on the type of game you want and the level of abstraction you need. So, huh. Tom, I have no idea if we actually answered your question
0: there, brother. But I think we talked around it at least. <laughs> so first, establish the type of game you want, yeah, to at least figure that out mm-hmm. and the players want, and all mutually agree upon something, whether it's, hey, we like in each individual gold piece, and we'll all each individually track that. Mm-hmm. you just give it to us, and hopefully you won't penalize us for encumbrance and carrying all of that. yes, and then. When we want to spend it, we can spend it now. The game master can determine how that works Mm -hmm. to the point of, well, these items are never going to be available or they always will be available. Whatever is in the PHB, you can just get and grab and whatever. Or you could role play it out where they go on a shopping spree. Um, And then if you want to throw in an influence piece and just meta that piece. So you could still have influence and be broke. Yes. Right, so if you have social status, maybe you just don't, ran out of money, so you can throw that into the the, the whole scheme of things.
1: Yeah, like if you take the uh, like the honor thing I, I talked about for five E, you could say, "Hey, make an honor check." It's not even a charisma pieces. Like, look, my honor dictates that I am good for this, and well, I'm an honorable person. Therefore, you'll help me, or therefore you'll you'll do this thing for me, or whatever the case is. So,
0: yeah, but I mean, you could you can. Kind of give or take. I'm sure the DMG has got some ideas on that component or these components.
1: Yeah, but I think you're right. It's the how much abstraction do you use the Game Master and the players want? Yep. I think we. you actually might be surprised if you ask. You might actually have a table full of people like, you know what, I I don't want to count coins. Can we just roll it up to a number somewhere between 1 and 10?
0: Yeah, and you can 10, make brackets. Like yeah, you
1: could bracket it out.
0: Whatever that looks like.
1: But I think it's, it's a piece you could... Discuss with players because you may have a dissenter in the group too. You know, where where Brett says, No, I want to count every coin. You're like, Oh, for God's sakes, fine. Brett, you count every coin. Everybody else will use the bracket system. (laughs) But I think it's worth it, especially then as a game master to say, Look, I don't like tracking this stuff. If you do, it's on you. I'm not going to keep track of your gold. Right. Or whatever. So, huh. Hmm. But there's plenty of other game systems out there. We picked on just a couple. Um, but I think if you look at other ways that people abstract games, you can, uh, excuse me, abstract coinage in, in finances and games, you can take some of those and transition them to almost anything you want. You could house rule it in, even if it's not a D20-based thing, but percentiles or point spend or whatever, you could you could make it work. Right. So if anybody's got a better idea or different approaches or whatever, let us know. Let's help out Tom and see what we can do to, to throw some more awesomeness out there. So cool.
0: Thanks, Tom, for suggesting the topic, man. Absolutely. All right, let's get into the Die Roll. All right. Die Roll.
1: Go ahead, Brett. First one's yours. Yeah, Kingdoms and Warfare. We talked about Strongholds and Followers. Well, Matt Colville, his crew, has MCDM, has come out with Kingdoms and Warfare Kickstarter. That's now. Um, I back this one. I like Matt. I like what he does. And I like the. Um, I like the first book, even though I haven't completely gone through it. I like the idea of it. And actually, the next time I run a big 5e campaign for my home group, I'm going to use both of these Is my goal. Um, This one, he asked for $300,000. And he currently has 8,350 backers and $589,253 as of right now. Wow, that guy Um, is a
0: machine.
1: Yeah. So this is not just for the book. He's got minis. T shirt stickers, the usual craziness in there. Some of the minis look freaking awesome. Wow. Uh, I'm not even getting in on minis. I just want the the cool book. So I'm just in at the level to get me the cool book, but book and PDF. Anyway, take a look at that. Check it out. If that's a thing that you're interested in and you like 5e, that could be a cool way to go.
0: Sean, what do you got? Gamma. The Gamer Association Manufacturers Manufacturers Association.
1: (laughs) I like that. The Redundantly Redundant and Repetitive Association of Associates.
0: Whatever it stands for. (laughs) Launches their online magazine around the table. Uh, You can get the, and it's. I believe it's just online. You can get it online. You can get it online.
1: Well, that's a good place to get online stuff.
0: Well, if you're the Gaming Association Manufacturer's Manufacturer's Association, you could probably get an online magazine online. <laughs> oh, probably on the World Wide Web. So check it out. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes to grab it. It's like this weird e-reader online, so it's not something you could necessarily download, but um, it looked interesting just from a quick glance.
1: It says there's a, du- there's a download button on it, dude. I'm oh, there is right a now. download link. You're yeah. right.
0: Yeah. There's a download link. On I'm just not right. sure what the format is. The format looks weird as hell. Yeah. What else we got? Todd Crapper, a.k.a. Broken Ruler Games, is launching a Kickstarter on October 29th, 2019. We don't know if he's trying to raise $5 or $5 million yet, but uh, it's going to be about... The the title of the product is going to be The World's Greatest Role-Playing Game. It is going to be a zine that puts an indie spin on the fifth edition of... You know, <laughs> by Todd and Jen Adcock. Cool. So that be on the lookout for that and uh, support Todd. He's a good guy. Absolutely. He's, he helps us out too.
1: Yes, he does. Good man.
0: But otherwise, that is it for this show, Brett.
1: Cool. Next week, I'm thinking about a couple different things, Sean. I was thinking about Halloween's coming. Thinking about talking about disease and plagues and horrendous, Ooh. horrendous things like that. Thinking about talking about bring out like, your dad. Yeah, length of campaigns, Ooh. um, a couple different things. Ooh. So it's gonna be uh, hopefully be good. Maybe better than this one. Maybe worse than this one. Hopefully. Listen, listen next week and find out
0: for sure. Sounds like a plan. All right. I know I will. I'll be here. I hope you are. Because <laughs> <laughs> without you, Sean,
1: there's no goddamn show. I'll tell you that.
0: Oh man. All right, the pressure is on. Yes. All right, thanks for tuning in, everybody. I'm Sean.
1: And I'm Brett. Good night and good game and all.
0: This episode of Gaming and BS brought to you with the help from the following BSers. Graham Miner, Corey Wynn, Hawk Sparrow, Larry Howe, Mark Tosaka, Pure Mongrel, Chris Steele, Ron Bishop, Thomas Hook, Wayne Humphrey, Craig, Brandon Barnes, Laramie Wall, Dan LaValley, Jason Hobbs, Sky, Roger Brasslett, John Hammersley, Old School DM, Perry Besore, Michael Dinos, Jim Fitzpatrick. Christopher Gray, Bruce Cunnington, John Kayward, Corey Gonzalez, Eileen Barnes, Robert Nemeth, Niall Diamond, Howard Bishop, Stefan Dragonspawn, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Eric Salzweedle, Trevor Davis, The Closet Gamer, Jeff Goad, Aaron Coleman, Ray Otis, C.W. Mellencamp, Craig Huber, Rich Wishon, Old Scouser Roleplaying, Jared Rasher, Andy Hall, David F. Balog, Harrigan, Melissa Bashinsky, Brian Rumble, Henry Newcomb, Chad Gleyman, Finnolf, Ulf, Marco Freilich, Lord Tentacle, Joe Swick, Curtis Takahashi, Josh Wallace, Kevin Lovecraft, Andy Olson, Tony Sugarloaf Baker, Jeff Seifert, Aaron Ralia. Hey, did you know that if you gave us a dollar a month, that you would get the show earlier than the public? Head over to GamingNBS.com forward slash Patreon P-A-T-R-E-O-N and make that happen. Thanks, BSers! This This has has been a Litterbox Studio Studio Production.